Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. Hey, do me a favor, look at the person next to you and say, man, I'm so glad to see you here today. Everybody. All right, now, all right, so now what I need you to do is I need you to go to the person you ignored just a minute ago, okay? That's what I, tell them too, because you're glad that they're here as well. Hey, I just want to begin us with this, kind of this, this idea and claiming the truth of this particular verse, and it just coincides beautifully with what we just sung to the Lord. And here's where I want us to begin. I want us to begin with this reassuring verse that comes by way of Romans 8.31, because here's what I know. I know that we are in a series that we've been talking about change and personal change and personal revival and corporate revival and what that may look like and, and individual changes, maybe the things that God is stirring in your heart to change in your personal life. And I know that some of us, we are still kind of feeling like there's a wall that's keeping us from doing the thing that God is, is whispering to us or maybe shouting for us to do. So here's what I, I want all of us to do. And I, I need you guys to stand up right now. I need you loosen up a little bit. Sometimes when I get up and preach, you guys get, you, you'll sit down and you, you'll tighten up. Loosen up a little bit. Loosen your shoulders up. Come on. Everybody. Everybody. I'm looking and so is Jesus. All right. Loosen up here. It's, it's going to be okay. We're in this together. I know it's a little weird. I stand up every week and do this. You can stand up too. All right. Here's what we're going to do. So we're going to claim this promise today, but we're going to claim it in a unique way. You see it on the, on the screen right now. And it says, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? So I want you guys to just to declare this back to God and to one another in, a, in just a, in a bit of faith, like in belief of saying, if God is for us, and then I want you to finish the verse over here. And it's a little competition. I'm not going to lie. It's a little competition. You're against them. We're all together and you're against them. Okay. But we're, we're together. It's, but it's competition. And again, I'm watching and more importantly, so is Jesus. So let's do this together. All right. So you're going to say what, if God is for us, and then you guys are going to say what, they're ready. I'm just saying they're ready. All right, I'm going to do one, two, three, and then after three, you're going to start over here. And I'm not even going to help you. You guys, you're all on your own. I want you to believe it. I think there may be a little bit more people over here, but it's okay. It's okay. Because, yeah, yeah, I have faith in this group too. All right, you ready? One, two, three. That was pretty good. Not bad for a first go-round. All right, so now we need to up it a little bit more because it was a tie. It was a tie. So this is the tiebreaker, right? We have one shot to do this. Again, I'm going to count it down. You guys are doing so well. Uh, uh, one, two, three, and then I'm, you're going to say the thing, right? Uh, you guys, you own that last time, but everybody together. I mean, come on, get the diaphragm involved here all the way up. Not no breathy thing. Like, come on, let's do this, all right? Like, we're all one holy choir. Here we go. One, two, three. You guys can sit down. Jesus won. That's who won. All right. Yeah. Oh, you weren't excited about that. Somebody else wanted to be the winner. All right. We'll work on that. We'll work on that. Hey, there's so much truth to that verse. And I just want to say thank you for playing along. It's, it's good to have fun at church, is it not? 
It's good to smile when you're at church. It's good to feel alive when you come to church. This isn't a time to, to just mourn losses. This is, this is a time also to celebrate gains and to see what God has for us. But I wanted us to begin here today because ultimately what we're going to see in, in Ezra 9 is, is Ezra enters into a very difficult situation. And by saying, by saying what we're going to say and reading what we're going to read in this passage, you're going to know exactly what the situation is, and some of you are going to feel really tense. You just are. I've been praying for you. Some of you are going to lock up. You're going to feel really tense, and you're going to be like, okay, is he talking to me? Is he talking to me? Is he talking to me? Just assume I'm not talking to anybody that God may be talking to you. That'll really help you out to kind of move forward. Not to, I'm not cherry-picking who I'm talking to. I'm just trying to say what it is that God wants me to say, and then knowing that he's speaking to all of us. Us. But I know that sometimes when we get into troubling passages or difficult passages to understand, or we get into a situation that, that we know that God is stirring us to do something, we kind of feel that that seems like an impenetrable wall because we stop believing that God is for us. We stop believing that God is for us. Sometimes we can, because of how we're, we're wired in our sin nature, we can start believing against what God has for us. And we can start believing that God is not for us. And that it feels like the world is against us. But I wanted you to begin with, with that truth, that if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is what? No one. No one. No one can stop the plans of God. That's a good place for a hearty amen, church. No one. So... In Ezra 9, if you've been following along the series, you already know, and if you've been, uh, and I'm so excited, actually, when you guys turn in your info cards and, uh, and you tear those off and you put them in the connection box and we read those, and I'm so excited because week after week after week, the number of people saying, I'm going to read uh, the, the passage for the, the following week has just gone up and up and up throughout the weeks, which is really exciting. What's not so exciting is the series is about to end, so I don't know what we're going to do after that, but... <laughs> Just kidding. I know what we're going to do, and I know you're probably going to continue to read, and there's going to be more of you to do that. So while I've been excited about those of you who are engaged in that and, and kind of connecting with the Scripture, some of you have already seen this, and you've already seen where we're going, and you're wrestling with this. And what we're going to see today is just a continuation of the story of where we've been. Ezra is, is leading he has led a group of, of exiles. There were two, two groups of exiles. He's in the second group. It's smaller than the first group. And now they're, they're entering into the promised land, and he goes in there with a sense of optimism. There's some opposition, but there's optimism, and God is doing some amazing things. And yet Ezra goes right into this land, and he has people there. There's already, uh, there's already been a group of exiles that have gone in there, and the group of exiles weren't actually following God's laws at all. Instead, they were following the laws of the sinful people who already lived there. So Ezra walks into a mess. He's leading in with all this optimism, and he goes in there, and he, and he just wrestles with what he sees. And this is what he sees. Look in Ezra 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with all of their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. 
They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, this is, this is what Ezra says. He says, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my beard or from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the, Lord, of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement. Think of that word abasement or self-abasement, meaning just a deep grief, a deep sorrow. He says this, I rose from my self-abasement, my deep sorrow, my, my deep grief, with my tunic and cloak torn, and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord, to the Lord my God and prayed. Here's his prayer. Oh, my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift, lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt is reached to the heavens. For the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now for a brief moment, The Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes in every relief and our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. Can we say amen to that? That we have a God that though we are maybe enslaved to our own sin and bondage to our own sin, God doesn't leave us there. That God gives an opportunity for us to repent and turn away from those things and live a new life for him. As we continue, he has shown us kindness in his sight of the the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, O our God, what can we say after this? For we have discarded the commands you gave through your servants and prophets when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to these sons and take your daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at this time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. Verse 13. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved. And have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O God, God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you with all of our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us shall stand in your presence. Next week, as we end the Catalyst series, we're going to see also what happens just after this prayer that that Ezra prays. And we're going to see what happens more corporately with the whole group and how they respond. And you'll see that it's a very positive way of response. And it's a response that also has an invitation for you and I. Throughout this passage, in reading it, you can just 
feel the tension, can you not? You can just feel the tension that what Ezra had to have felt like when he goes into this place and he cannot believe what he sees. That though there were, there were laws, holy laws, righteous laws from, from Exodus and Deuteronomy that they were supposed to be living under, but they had discarded God's laws and now they're just doing what was right in their own eyes. They're doing what felt right. And now Ezra goes in with this wave of momentum. And by, by the way, I don't know if you've caught that in the reading, but also some of Nehemiah's stories woven in here too because it makes a reference to the walls of Jerusalem to be built up, which means that this was after the walls around Jerusalem had been built up under Nehemiah's leadership, and that's the third exile group. We won't cover any of that in this series. But that's also inter, it's intermingled here. But you see, even though all these amazing things were going on, Ezra is sitting here with disbelief of like, I can't believe that this is, this is what you people are doing. You have bypassed God's blessing and now you're, you're intermarrying with people you ought not to intermarry with. One of the reasons why, and I know some of you, we, we're all at different levels spiritually. Some of you are like, we're, we're going to get to more of this in a moment, but some of you are like, well, shouldn't they just be able to marry whoever it is that they want to marry? This group of people that God was trying to keep them from was a group of people that that sacrificed children. The Canaanites, they were some of the ites who were mentioned there. They were also, not only did they sacrifice children to a false god by the name of Molech, you you can research this and find out all kinds of stuff on your own about this. How corrupt and how vile they were. All of the, they had all sorts of immoral sexual practices that, that took place in their quote unquote worship times and services together. So much moral corruption. And God is trying to develop a holy people, and he's saying the way that there's going to be a holy people that is developed is by not intermingling with them. And, and above all, they, they were all, all of the ites who were mentioned there. They were all ites, by the way, other than the Egyptians. They were the oddball of the group, right? Canaanites, Amorites, Hizzites, Perizzites, all of the ites, or all the ites, except the Egyptians. But all of them were polytheistic, and here's what that means. That means they, they believed that there was more than one God. Whereas the Jewish people, just as, as Christians today, we believe that there's one true God. And there's one true God, and he exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's one God. It's the Godhead. And they were polytheistic, so they would bow down to all of these false gods so their allegiance would have been divided with the people of God. We're going to get to more of that in just a minute. The first fill in the blank that you have, and I think that we just need to create a good theology of marriage. It's going to be brief. It's not going to be as much as I want. But we're going to begin here. If you are filling in the blanks and you have your info card, it's this. Marriage is is a blessing for God, for all people. It's a blessing for God and from God for all people. True or false, all of the ites could also marry. True. They could. This is a a term that's called common grace, which means that God showers blessings, undeserved blessings, over the saved and over the lost. It's just common grace. It's Everyone can benefit by the common grace of sitting under a shade tree on a sunny day. 
If you know, every human being can enjoy that, we can enjoy water. We can enjoy the sun as it is. We can enjoy a beautiful view. No matter where we are in the world, there are beautiful views and vistas, even right here in central Illinois. Maybe you can't see it because you live here, but it exists. Look around. But there are all sorts of common graces of which what we, what we can enjoy, and marriage is one of these common graces. Another common grace that I enjoy personally is coconut. I enjoy coconut. Does, does anybody else like coconut? Raise your hand. God's people, I'm telling you, coconut <laughs> ministers to your soul and your taste buds. It just does. I used to eat these. By the way, does anybody like snow, snowballs? Anyone? Raise your hand. It's okay. No shame in your game. You do. Who would like this package right now? I literally bought it for you. Who wants this? Come on up. Come on up. Get up here, Rob. Look, you, you had, come on up here. One of our deacons. Here you go. There, there you go. He said, I'm not bashful. There you go, my friend. I know somebody else feels slighted, so I brought two. All right, here we go. I know. They're like, man, there's only one. Who wants the other one? Come on. Come on. Where are you? You had your hand up a minute ago. There you go. You are so welcome. Enjoy those. I love coconut. I just do. I'm like weird when it comes to coconut. I like all forms of coconut. But if I ate all of the coconut things that I like to eat, I would be a very large and very unhealthy man. And maybe I've already had a couple heart attacks by now. I love coconut. I'm weird when it comes to coconut. I was so desperate to have coconut one time whenever I was in Puerto Rico in my time in the service that we were, uh, we were kind of off, we were off base and had some free time and just got to spend the day in this area. I think it was an area called Ponce, Puerto Rico. I'm not positive if that's what the city was, but I believe that was the port of call. And I remember looking around and seeing coconuts in a tree. And I was like, I got to have me one of those. So uh, me and a friend of mine who I worked with, we devised a plan to take the coconut out of the tree. So we eventually found a way to get a coconut out of the tree. And I'm telling you, I spent like way too much time. I don't know. I don't know if it was all afternoon, but I can tell you it was a long, long time trying to open up that coconut. Do you know those jokers are really hard? Did you know that? Like I was so used to the shredded kind that comes in a bag and I'm like, this is just amazing. Uh, But this, it was so hard to get this coconut open, but I was so desperate to have it that that I took that, and there was a, just some pavement there. Once I got it out of the tree, I was throwing that joker in the air as far as I could throw it, and it would come down and hit the pavement. And I, and I thought I could hear just the faint laugh of, ha, 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 not today, not today. You're not going to eat this today. It was over and over and over again, so I, I got wise, and I started slamming it. People probably thought I was vandalizing something, but I was just desperate. And eventually, eventually I got it open, only to find out. The coconut juice is actually not sweet. It's kind of gross, actually. And that sweet coconut that comes in a bag that says angel flake doesn't taste like angel flake when you get it out of a coconut itself. <laughs> Indeed, it was gross, and I wasted a lot of time. Coconut, for some, for most of us, maybe if you, I don't know, you've seen Castaway, right? If we're ever on a deserted island, all of a sudden, you can live on coconut, just as Tom Hanks did in that movie. Really sad, though, the whole Wilson thing, like tragic. Okay, let's be honest, that was, we'll get more to that later probably. But coconut in one way will save your life. It's a common grace. It just is. 
everyone can enjoy the benefits of what coconut has. Marriage is the same way. Marriage is a blessing for all people. It's just part of God's common grace. Even someone who's not a follower of Jesus is displaying something about God when they make vows to one another before God in marriage. Even though they're not Christian, they still display something about God because when you make an oath to one another, you, in essence, are also doing it to God, whether or not you even knew it or not. And you're making that to God. So marriage is something that God has blessed It's just an opportunity for all of us to have as part of God's common grace. We're going to drill down and more into this as we go along. But we're going to back up, and I'm just going to give you a little runway into this from Genesis and build out this idea. Marriage was first instituted by God in the order of creation, and marriage was given by God as an unchangeable foundation for human life. Again, when, when somebody takes the vows of marriage, they're covenanting with God and this other person by a vow. It is a commitment. It is indeed a covenant. Marriage exists. It has existed throughout humanity. You may be thinking, okay, well, how does this resonate with what we're talking about today? We'll get there. Genesis 1.27 says this. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? It's interesting. I I don't have to be a biologist to know that God only created male and female. And Genesis 2, 18 says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is before Christianity. This is before the church. This is before sin was introduced, and this is God's ideal. We don't always live into God's ideal, but this is God's ideal. So faithfulness or faithful love is is at the heart of a marital relationship. Scripture talks a lot about what that is and different types of things. Marriage itself is a common grace. It's a common grace. Just like hunger is a common grace. When you, when you develop hunger, that is a common grace. But yet for every one of these, there also it can be a negative or sinful side of it. I can, I can have hunger, and hunger is not evil, but gluttony is sinful. The consumption, the, 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 the wanting and the consumption of too much. Thirst itself is not evil, but drunkenness is a sin. Sleep is a gift from God, but being slothful or lazy is Sex is a precious gift when used rightly in the context of marriage, but yet when used on the, on the outside of the, of the covenant of marriage, then it is immoral. So for every one of these common graces, there is a sinful alternative. We're going to find out why in a moment. Back to verse 1. In this passage, what we see is God's lining something out for, for his people, for For the Israelites, we're ultimately going to see that there's something different for us as well. The second takeaway, if you're a note taker, is this. Marital boundaries exist for God's covenant people. So while marriage is a common grace that you can get married and you're still displaying something about God, even if you didn't even think you were, even if you didn't know that you were. But there is a shift that happens for the people of God. The scripture that coincides with what's happening in verse 1. 
of what Ezra sees when he sees that the that the holy covenanted people of God are now intermarrying with those who are polytheistic, those who are worshiping false gods. The violation actually comes from Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4, and this is what that passage says. It says, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons and take your daughters for their sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. God had already given the warning and he had already given the consequences if they didn't heed that warning. If they didn't live into the covenant of which, what God was setting out, the consequences were way out in front. There's another passage that corresponds with this. This is not going to be on your screen. This comes from Exodus 19, 5 and 6. It says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my command, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So they were reminded that God was, God had something on offer for his people. And marriage was supposed to be displaying something. And marriage itself was not only displaying something about God, but also the lifestyle that came when people lived in accordance with God. And with God's laws. They joined, the, the people of God here in Ezra 9, they joined with the, the, the people who were unbelievers doing detestable practices. Because the other people looked good. Because they, take, they took really good care of their body. And also because, the, because there was the promise of if they were to allow their daughters to marry these, these powerful and, and rich men, then maybe that would bring back a blessing Upon these people. So they were willing to, to leverage their daughters for these other rich and powerful men, hoping that they would have some return. Not to mention where this would take them spiritually with all the, the detestable practices. So I'm going to go through, there's nine or ten different things here from this passage. They're not going to be on your screen. You probably don't want to take notes of these. Probably not going to give you time to take notes of these. So I just want you to know that up front. But there are several things here. That, that help us to understand the weight and significance of, of what Ezra is in the middle of and why he responds by pulling out his hair. I mean, you know it gets serious when somebody starts pulling out their hair, right? He, and then in his beard hair, I mean, seriously, Ezra. He, like, literally, he's like, he is so in anguish and deep sorrow that he's pulling out his hair and he's pulling out his beard and he's tearing his clothes. All of this is a public display of what's going on inside of him. There's some things here in verse 10, just some general ideas that as we kind of bore down into this. The separation from the peoples of the land, they were commanded by God. That I drew out of verse 10. It was commanded by God that they should be separate from those who are doing undetestable practices because God knew that ultimately it would take them off path the second thing is this. The commandment in question was actually ancient. I just read it to you from Deuteronomy and also from Exodus 19. These were ancient. These weren't like new principles. They were ancient. These had been spoken to the children and passed on generation to generation and generation. They knew full well of what God expected of them. The commandment had been repeated by various prophets. 
So there's no way that they could just plead ignorance and say, well, I just didn't know. No, you knew because everyone knew. And God wanted them to know, so he kept sending prophets over and over and over with the same message. The commandment had been explained. Although I, and I borrow this from verse 19, I can tell you, God doesn't have to fully explain his commands. He's God and we're not. Our response to God's commands are obey. That's, that's our response. Not questioning God's commands to say, well, God, did you really say that I should do that? Well, are you really sure that I should do that? I just don't think I should do this. I should be able to do my own thing. Just, just to kind of put it out there, I'm like, how dare us to think that we can question God's commands? He's a holy God. He's a holy God. The commandment was very specific. Verse 12, we, we see this, and this is where I borrow this from. It says, therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take your daughters for their sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. The commandment was very specific. There was nothing gray or vague about what God was saying. Also, the commandment was accompanied by a promise and an implied threat, of which we just read in verse 12. The consequences were, were right out front. The commandment had, had been broken in spite of the fact that God had already punished them prior for the same transgression. This is something that they were already living with the consequences of their choices, and they had been again and again and again. This is just the, this is the same pattern of living. The commandment had been broken in spite of all the grace that God had shown them. How God rescued them, and every time that they're in a cycle of, of, of repentance and unrepentance, God brought them through. And lastly, the violation of the commandment placed a remnant, the remnant of people who were there in the Holy Land. It placed them in jeopardy of being wiped out. You may sit back and say, well, I, I, okay, this is... This is Old Testament. This is hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. The church doesn't even exist. Like, how, does it, how is this even relevant to me? You will find this interesting. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, we see a very similar bit of wording that does applies to Christians today. This is what that passage says. Do not team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? What union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Do not touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So many parts of this passage actually tie together with what we see in Deuteronomy and also in an exodus. Because in the original passage, we see what God is up to. We see that the reason, one of the reasons why God asked them and, and 
just had them to not marry or join partnerships with unbelievers. It's because he was trying to have a people who were holy. It's what it says in this passage. It says, holy race. Don't think of skin color. Think of just a group of people. Verse 2, they have taken some of the daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So this idea of of holiness is meaning a set-apart people. They were a set-apart people. A people that were blessed by God and that God would be a blessing to the world through them. That ultimately that this covenanted people would be a people who were devoted to God and living for God, but ultimately would would bring blessing to the city and ultimately through the nations through this group of people. And God had asked them and he had wanted them and he was trying to develop them to be a holy set-apart people, a sacred people, a people who had a moral purity that was different than those who were practicing detestable practices. This is what God still wants for us today. So why do we feel like we should be able to marry whoever we want or do whatever we want or go wherever we want? Why do we feel like that? Why do we, why do we feel like, like okay, God, I, I can do this. I, I feel like I should be able to, to do this or, or I just, I want to go do this. And why is it that there's some sort of violation inside of us when we feel like we should be able to do whatever it is that we want to do and we live in opposition to what God says? The next fill in the blank in your card is this, and it explains the situation that we're all in. All of us. Emotion, desire, and passion have all been victimized by our sin nature. And therefore must be surrendered to Christ. Emotion, desire, and passion have all been victimized by our sin nature. And therefore must be surrendered to Christ. This is the reason why that that you and I, we just can't do always what we feel is right. We can't just say whatever we feel is right. We can't just go about our lives in such a way to where we just do whatever we want. Because when, if we were just to do that, we could be so swept up in our sin nature and miss the blessing that God wants to bring into our lives and also the blessing He wants to bring in other people's lives. And look around. Look around. It's all right. I know this is a serious moment, but look around. You know what I see? You know what you see? A bunch of imperfect people. A bunch of imperfect people needing Jesus Christ. That's who's in the room and that's who's at home watching right now. That's where we are. There's no one of us that's better than the other. This isn't a matter of creating a scale of who's more righteous and who's who's unrighteous. We all have been victimized by the sin nature that's, that's within us. We all have. And then all of us need to surrender to Christ. We all have a place this level at the cross. And that being said, 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. This word world is confusing. And you may think, well, if it's in the world, that's good. That wor- the, the word world is the word cosmos. And it means the system by which the world operates in opposition to God or being hostile to God. Chaos. So do not love the the world, the cosmos. Do not love anything that is hostile to God. Anything that's hostile to God or anything that's hostile to God's commands or anything that's hostile to God's way of life or anything that's hostile to God's law. The first and second law of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Because anything hostile to God is in opposition to God. So now we're going to follow this all the way back to Genesis 3, 6. And we're going to overlay what we saw in 1 John 2, 16. And we're going to overlay that with Genesis 3, 6. As we're talking about how all of, of our lives emotionally, our wills, our desires, all of those things have been impacted by our sin nature. Genesis 3.16 with the overlay of John, 1 John 2.16. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, that's the pride of life, she took the fruit. She took the fruit. So these things are hostile to God. We see this right here in plain view in Genesis 3.6. We see that there's still a war that's happening, a spiritual war that's happening, that's, that's trying to get us to, to do whatever it is that we want to do and do whatever it, or to say whatever we want to say and love whoever we want to love and marry whoever it is that we want to love. And in so many ways... It can be all of those things are hostile to God and they can find themselves in one of three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. Or the pride of life. But notice the response. Notice Ezra's response knowing all of this, knowing the weight and the intensity of the moment. Let's go back to verse 3, Ezra 9. We're going to read verses 3 and 4. Notice his response. And I think that his response should say something of our response. Ezra said, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my beard, and, or from my head and beard, and I sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening service, or evening sacrifice, excuse me. It was like a worship service. So what was his response? Falling before God in worship. His response is, God, I am overwhelmed. I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be leading this group of people. There's a great spiritual 
revival that's happening. The walls are built. Thank you, Nehemiah. Uh, Zerubbabel, he brought the first exiles in. They got the foundation built and where the worship is going to take place. Ezra comes in with all of these other spiritual reforms. Everything looks great. And now he finds himself in the middle of the mess. But notice what he does. He doesn't just throw himself in to try and fix the mess or fix people's lives. Instead, he goes before Almighty God in recognizing there's nothing he can do under his own power but surrender himself to God. In church, you have to know the same thing. You may be feeling found out right now. You may feel like you're caught in just a just a, a whirlwind of sin and you're at the center of it and you're maybe the, you feel like you're at the blame for it and you just you feel really found out right now and I don't want to try and make you feel bad but here's what I want you to do I want you to know that Jesus Christ died on our cross to take away the sins that you're bound to right now that you're bound to right now the same sins that are weighting you down right now that you feel like you can't squirm your way out from under. The, those same sins, the sins that are hidden sins, the sins that happened 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago or yesterday or this morning, he is, he is a God of promises and he died once and for all. He died to take away those sins. And not only that, he also died to take away the guilt and the sorrow that comes by those sins. This is the victory. This is the victory that is, on, that is on offer by way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll end with this. We're going to jump right back into this, this idea next week. Victory in Christ is found when we continually confront our sins. Victory in Christ is found when we continually confront our sins. Victory in Christ is found when we continually confront our sins. Neglecting our sins will not bring you victory. Pretending that you are no longer sinning will not help you live in Victory. Victory in Christ is found when we continually confront our sins. And what we'll see next week is this is exactly what they do. Our victory is secure because of a passage of Scripture that we can read about in 1 Peter 2, 24. This is what that Scripture says. He personally carried our sins in His body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. Wow. And by his wounds, you are healed. This is the pathway to victory. This is the pathway to having your sorrow and your guilt removed. This is the pathway that brothers and sisters in Christ in days before this one have have felt the relief of the shame that they were bound to falls off of them like scales falling off of a human being. This is this is the pathway to victory and it's not because of what we've done it's because of what Jesus Christ has done. 
I don't know who you are, and I don't know where you are spiritually. But I reckon this. I reckon that there's a lot of of you, perhaps, that feel a little found out right now. You feel a little exposed. But the fact that you feel something in this moment actually says that you are positioned for victory. It means you're positioned for victory. It either means in this moment, if you're feeling something and you're just not numb, if you're feeling something, that means God is working. And that means there's something that needs to be reconciled in your life. Maybe it's reconciled within your own self. Maybe it's reconciled with someone else. Maybe it's just going boldly before God and just confessing that as sin before God, whatever it was, big or small, whatever it was, and just go to God. But if you're feeling something in this moment, you are positioned well for victory. And the victory is not accomplished because you're a good church person or not because you come here every week or not because you know the songs or not because you read the scripture ahead of time. The victory, first and foremost, came by way of the cross, of which what we read right here in 1 Peter 2.24. That he, Jesus, personally carried your sins and my sins in his body on the cross. That is the pathway to victory. Would you stand now? I want to ask you a series of questions and and I'm praying that you'll be courageous enough to answer it. Who would be honest right now in this moment and say, I think God's speaking to me in some way? Who'd be, who'd be honest and say, I think God is speaking to me? Their hands up going all over the room. Who would be honest and say, just keep your hand up. That's fine. Who would say, I know God is speaking to me, but I'm not sure of what he's speaking to me about. Just If, if that's you, also raise your hand. Everybody put your hands down, please. Who would be honest and raise their hand and say, you know what, I feel spiritually stuck right now. Who would be bold enough and just courageous enough to just say, I feel spiritually stuck right now. Thank you for that honesty. Thank you for that honesty. I want to pray for you right now. Father God, I pray. I pray to you, you're a holy and loving and graceful God. And there are people in the room right now that have spiritual struggles. Although I don't know what those struggles are, God, you do. And I pray, God, that you would meet every one of their needs, their spiritual needs right now. If there's something that's going on inside their heart, God, I pray that you'd give them the courage to follow through whatever whatever it is. Whether it's praying now in this moment or something that has to happen after they leave this building. But for all the brothers and sisters who raised their hand, who said they're struggling with something. Or maybe they're feeling something, they just don't know exactly what it is. God, I pray that you would just send your spirit upon them. A spirit of revival to them. God, I know that what we see in in the life of Ezra is really the life that needs to be lived out for all of us. The victory that would come out of that movement of God and every other movement of God has been birthed in prayer. So God, we boldly ask you this morning 
to do what it is that you want to do in our lives. If we have indifference, I pray that you would take that indifference away. If there's some that are consumed with guilt, I pray that you would take that guilt away. If there's some who are consumed with the shame aspect of something they've done, something they've said, God, I pray that you would take it away. And for that person who's here right now and and they're not a follower of Jesus and they just feel found out and they know they're not a Christian, I pray that you would just give them the courage to come forward and admit that to to me or to someone else so that we can share the gospel and we can tell them what it's like to in the scriptures to what it means to turn their life over to God and, and to be able to live in the fullness of the abundant life. But God, I just sense your presence in this moment. I know that you're working. I know you want to continue to work. And I also know that there are people in here who didn't raise their hand. And they know they should have. I'm thankful, God, that you know them and you can work in them too. So Jesus, as we respond in this singing, help our hearts respond in the way that you would like us to.